0: Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for October 18th, 2021. Here's today's rundown. We'll learn the surprising truth about the No Surprises Act and why it's not good news for out-of-network providers. Healthcare attorney Thomas Forrest reports our lead story. Will President Biden nominate Robert Califf to lead the Food and Drug Administration? A decision is expected this week. However, the president has until November 15th to make the switch, or the acting commissioner stays. Monitor Monday legislative analyst Matthew Albright provides details. We'll also hear from health care attorney Nicole Emanuel, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and health care attorney David Glazer Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck.
1: Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. As we come on the air this morning, the Associated Press is reporting that General Colin Powell has died of complications from COVID-19, this according to family members. Meanwhile, the public health emergency has been extended for another 90 days, and that means waivers, including the three-day nursing home waiver. Meanwhile, there's optimism about the progress this country is making in its fight against COVID-19. There continues to be a nationwide drop in cases and hospitalizations that, in the face of of millions of people who remain unvaccinated. Nonetheless, the death toll today is approaching 725,000. In the meantime, the American Hospital Association says that although the No Surprises Act was an important step forward in protecting patients from surprise medical bills, the HA says the administration's rule now has moved away from congressional intent. We'll hear more on this issue when health care attorney Thomas Ford joins us later in the broadcast to report our lead story. We have much news to report, and begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is
0: sponsored by R1 Position Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all,
2: and good morning, Roberta B. Last week, I talked about how Blue Cross of Michigan was making up their own rules on status determinations in the past, I've talked about how United Healthcare is using their own proprietary algorithms to automatically downgrade facility charges for emergency room visits. Well, last week, Medscape reported how Anthem, another Blue Cross p- product, has started to analyze physician claims and automatically downgrade office visit codes. As with UHC, Anthem would not provide any notice or explanation, but simply pay the claim at a lower rate. For example, if the physician submitted a Level 4 visit, it would be paid at a Level 3 rate. When asked, Anthem stated they use quote, analytical tools during their claim processing. They also stated the physicians can dispute the downgrades by, quote, supplying a statement explaining why they disagree with the decision, along with documentation to support their statement. Now, for one doctor, the payment difference is about $18 a claim. Now for that physician, those $18 add up. At the same time though, the cost of preparing the statement and the documentation and sending it to dispute the downgrade would probably cost more than $18. Medscape also discussed how Kaiser Kaiser Health News reported that payers are slowing down their payments to providers and profiting from the float. Now I'm not a lawyer, but it sure seems like some of these insurers are getting awfully close to being organized crime syndicates. Now in other news last week, first coast service options, one of the max released an update to their frequently asked questions about guidance for hospital admission decisions. And they referred readers to a CMS MLN matters. The problem was that the MLN was from 2012 and you know what, what didn't exist in 2012. Yep. The two midnight rule and to think CMS trusts them to process claims and interpret regulations. Now on Friday, this COVID-19 public health emergency declaration was renewed for another 90 days. It was set to expire on Sunday. As a reminder, the declaration extends all of the COVID-19 waivers, including the requirements to offer patients choice of a post-acute care provider and the three-day inpatient stay requirement. Of course, some nursing homes are continuing to refuse patients without that three-day inpatient stay, as is their right. With so much scrutiny on nursing homes during this pandemic and their terrible staffing shortages they're facing, it's not hard to understand why they may be worried about admitting a patient where they think they won't get paid. But their reluctance also means that a patient who does not require hospital care is occupying a bed that could be used by someone who needs it. But don't forget that rural hospitals have swing beds and critical access hospitals have swing beds, and they'd be glad to accept your patient for rehabilitation. Finally, today is the first day of the annual conference of the American College of Physicians Advisors. It's a virtual conference, and all the sessions are being recorded, so you can still register to attend and
1: not miss a session. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with a Monitor Monday Rack report is Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole.
3: Good morning, hello, and happy Rack Monitor Monday. Audits have now resumed to 100% capacity, or even 150% capacity. All audits that were suspended during COVID are now reinstated. As you know, RAC and MAC audits were reinstated back in August. CMS announced that the TPE audits would resume September 1, 2021. Unlike the RAC audits, the stated goal of the TPE audits is to help providers reduce claim denials and appeals with one-on-one education. However, do not let the stated mission fool you. Failing a TPE audit can result in onerous actions such as 100% prepay review, extrapolation, referral to Iraq. So a carefully crafted response to a TPE audit is critical, and TPEs can be postpay or prepay. Speaking of prepayments, these bad babies are back in full swing. CareSource is one of the companies contracted with CMS to conduct prepayment reviews and urgent care centers seem to be a target. Prepayment review is technically and legally not a penalty or a sanction. Therefore, being placed on prepayment review is not appealable. But do not believe these legalities. Prepay audits are draconian in nature and they do put many providers out of business, especially if they fail to seek legal counsel immediately and believe that they'll pass without any problem. When it comes to prepay, believing that everything's okay is a death trap. Instead, get a big stick. Chapter 3 of the Medicare Program Integrity Manual lays out the rules for a prepayment review audit. The manual states that MACs shall deal with serious problems using the most substantial administrative actions available, such as a 100% prepayment review of claims. So minor or isolated inappropriate bill- billing shall be remediated through the provider notification or feedback with re-evaluation re- after notification. Now the new prepayment review l- l- rules, the comments just closed on September 13th. So these new rules are going to take effect soon. If a 100% prepay is considered the most substantial administrative action, then why is it not considered an appealable sanction? I have, however, been successful in obtaining an injunction and joining the suspension of payments without appealing being placed on prepay. When requesting documentation for prepayment review, the MACs and the UPICs, they shall notify providers when they expect documentation to be received. It's normally 30 days. The manual does not allow for time extensions for providers who need more time to comply with the request. Reviewers actually shall deny claims when the requested documentation to support payment is not received by the expected time frame. Any audit, but especially prepay audits, can lead to termination under 42 CFR four twenty four point five point five three five. You may choose to speak softly, but always carry a big stick. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Nicole. That was Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up in about uh, 10 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Matthew Albright, Alan Fink-Samnick, David Glazer, and Healthcare Attorney Thomas Force, who is standing by to report our lead story. It's Monday, it's October the 18th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. The American College
0: of Physicians Advisors National Conference is back. The conference, titled Multifaceted Advising in an Unconventional World, takes place virtually today, October 18th through the 20th. The event will equip new and existing physician advisors, leaders in case management and clinical documentation integrity, revenue cycle professionals, C-suite leaders, and others with novel approaches to navigate their unique healthcare systems during unprecedented times. This conference is truly one of a kind and has become the go-to event for physician advisors at all stages of their careers. Scheduled speakers include outstanding thought leaders from the profession, as well as nationally recognized authorities involved in regulatory affairs and medical necessity screening procedures. Click the invitation on the RAC Monitor homepage or go to acpadvisors.org to register and earn up to 26 CME credits this week.
1: Here now with the Monitor Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney, David Glazer. Good morning, David. David, what could be risky this morning? Good morning, Chuck. So over the last couple of weeks, a half dozen clients, actually I think more at this point, have
4: received a post-payment medical records request from CoventBridge, a UPIC, or a Unified Program Integrity Contractor, whose jurisdiction includes Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Michigan, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, Ohio, and Wisconsin. Their Orwellian tagline is, think truth. A few weeks ago, I talked about the results of one of these UPIC audits, where Covent Bridge failed to apply the two-midnight rule, making up its own standard for inpatient status. Well, this request has its own set of issues. It requests approximately 35 bullet points of items. Now, some of them are totally legitimate. The physician history, the discharge summary, progress notes, lab, and other diagnostic studies in any supporting information from an outside transferring facility. Quick segue here, be alert that your HIM department uh, isn't under the mistaken belief that they're not supposed to send outside records in response to an audit, because somewhere in the HIM world, people got the mistaken notion that a facility owns its records and that an organization should never release copies of records from an, uh, that it received from an outside organization is part of a patient's care. There is so much wrong with that belief. First, it's entirely inconsistent with the information blocking rules, and it's certainly going to make you fare worse in an audit. HIM officials seem stuck on this misperception, and we need to stamp it out. Everything you've got in your records should go in response to a request. Now, back to my UPIC discussion. So, among the nearly three dozen bullet points, there are some really outlandish requests. They want a copy of the Medicare card and state identification card for every patient. They claim this permits them to uh, to investigate identity theft. But I don't know of any requirement that a hospital has to get or keep a copy of a patient's driver's license. The red flag rules address this, but I don't believe those rules are currently in effect for nearly any hospital. They're very limited situations where it might if you're extending credit, but the way hospitals operate not likely to be an issue. It requests copies of the licenses or certification for all personnel in a beneficiary's chart, including physicians, nurse practitioners, and nursing. This too makes little sense. In addition to it being a lot of work, copies of licenses don't prove anything. A license could have been suspended two weeks ago, and a copy of the license will still appear valid. If the UPIC is so stuck on checking everyone's licensure status, it can do what everyone else does, which is go to the licensing board and determine whether the person is licensed. The good news is that the Covent Bridge staff have been very pleasant to work with. They've shown some flexibility on things like licensure, suggesting that they're willing to waive that portion of the request. But while pleasant, they're still insisting on receiving things like a copy of your utilization review and case management policy uh, and procedures, as well as the name and version of the screening tool used. Well, guess what? There's definitely no requirement that you have a screening tool. And perhaps more importantly, the UPIC should be using only one thing to determine patient status, the same thing that every hospital should be using, the two Midnight Rule. The two-midnight rule is the one and only screening tool for Medicare patients, and the notion that they're asking you to produce your screening tool is pretty good evidence that they're once again going to apply the wrong standard. Now, up until now, I've never given a lot of thought to the authority that the UPIC has to demand anything beyond the medical record. I'm still looking into that, but I'm going to say with some confidence that the requests here go beyond the authority UPICs have. I'll be waiting eagerly to see whether they once again try to create their own invalid standard for reviewing inpatient admissions. I've never been a giant fan of Twisted Sister generally, or this song in particular, but when I read this request and saw the most recent audit results, I couldn't help but find myself humming, we're not going to take it. You know, we ain't going to take it.
1: hope you're going to take it back from me now. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson & Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Up next, Matthew Albright with a Monitor Monday legislative update.
0: The legislative update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zellis, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare care payments technology company. Zellis delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide.
1: Here now is Matthew Albright.
0: Chuck, it's all about vaccines this week. First, the government
5: is very close to approving boosters for the two remaining COVID vaccines, Moderna and Johnson & Johnson. As listeners know, the government has already authorized Pfizer boosters for older and at-risk Americans. But a key FDA advisory panel voted to recommend the remaining two boosters last week for older and at-risk Americans. Formal approval for the boosters could come from the FDA and CDC as early as this week. And you may have noticed that the big box stores are already selling Christmas and holiday decorations. Yes, already, or not even through Halloween. But the CDC is keeping up by updating its holiday guidance this week, last week, recommending that you get vaccinated before attending any holiday gatherings. The CDC's recommendations align with all of their previous guidance and include the idea of wearing a mask at indoor event, events if you are not vaccinated or if you have a condition or take medicine that weakens your immune system. And for the first time since the beginning of the pandemic, the United States will allow foreigners into the country starting on November 8th. Travelers must be vaccinated or have a negative test in the prior 72 hours to board a flight that goes to the United States. Lastly, in early September, President Biden announced that his administration would soon mandate that all companies with more than 100 employees need to require their employees to get vaccinated or to test for COVID weekly. Last week, that mandate moved into the last phase of rulemaking and is expected to be released as early as this week. Companies that do not comply will be facing fines of up to $14,000 violation, but businesses have a lot of questions about this upcoming rule, including whether companies have to collect proof of vaccination and whether remote employees have to be vaccinated. And as listeners are probably aware, the Biden administration also required all federal workers and contractors to get vaccinated by early December. That includes healthcare workers that receive Medicare and Medicaid reimbursements, which means it applies to about 17 million healthcare workers across the country. So if you wrap all these mandates together, about 100 million American workers, or two thirds of all workers in the country, will be required to be vaccinated before the end of the year. In good news for providers that's not related to vaccines, Congress is considering a bill that would implement real-time prior authorization for managed Medicare plans. Uh, The bill is intended to lessen the burden to providers when sending prior authorization requests to payers for items and services that are routinely approved. The bill now has support from a bipartisan majority of members in the House of Representatives. That's it from D.C. Chuck. Back to you.
1: Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew was the chief legislative affairs officer for Zellas. <music> now, with the very latest news on the social determinants of health, is Alan Finksen. Alan also has the Monitor Monday listener survey. And good morning, Alan.
6: Well, good morning, Chuck, and happy Monday, all. So, during the assorted phases of COVID. Safety net clinics stepped up. Community health centers, federally qualified health centers, and their clinics provided first and second dosages of the vaccine to patients. Extra unused dosages were often made available to members of the public rather than be wasted. However, it seems that public health has again gotten the short end of the reimbursement stick. Tens of millions of dollars, at minimum, are owed to clinics for shots provided since the vaccines received emergency authorization. Clinics are struggling. Reimbursement for well over 1 million COVID-19 vaccines is due in California alone. Countless other states have also filed their claims, while some of the struggle is due to the complex Medicaid reimbursement systems for federally qualified health centers. Under federal law, health centers are paid a set rate for patient visits, each potentially costing upwards of $500 or more, including practitioner evaluation and intervention, lab work, and other diagnostics. Many state Medicaid agencies have indicated if patients received their COVID shot with other care, the clinic's cost to give the vaccine was covered as part of its normal payment rate. Yet bigger losses were incurred when the vaccination was the only service provided, as during a mass immunization clinic. Some states have tried to bill Medicaid separately for dosages, as in the $40 rate per shot charged under Medicare. However, the wait for reimbursement has been excessive and related to CMS's inability to finalize a payment formula for exactly how much it costs a clinic to give a shot. It's no surprise that costs vary across the states, contributing to the delays and confusion. Michigan is just below the $40 mark, yet California provided a rate of over $67. Larger factors are at issue for the community health centers, in many cases, Extra staffing for supplies, immunization clinics, and dosages were addressed by grant funding, which is now exhausted. A high percentage of the population served by the centers lack health insurance. Over half of the shots administered to the the community without collecting insurance information. States are stepping up to provide payment proposals. though continue to play a game of hurry up and wait. The question remains, how much longer can they play? The American Rescue Act provided $7.6 billion to clinics for COVID vaccination, testing, and treatment, yet this far from covered every frontline clinic effort. Many have tapped small business loans as well as state monies to maintain operations. In the meantime, the fiscal shortfall will translate to concerning issues for safety net and community health centers, such as overall service and treatment delays safety uh, staff retention, and other obstacles to preventative and continuing care. These issues will imperil the safety net relied on by so much of the population and their healthcare organizations. Our Monitor Monday survey asks, does your hospital or agency refer patients to safety net clinics or community health centers? Yes? No? No? does not apply, do not know. Well, it'll be interesting to see how much those safety net clinics are a benefit to the industry. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks very much, Ellen. That was consultant and author Ellen frick And as Ellen said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Money Listener Survey later in this broadcast. Automate
0: denial workflows and simplify audit processes from a single platform with Refine from Vine Medical. Designed specifically for healthcare, the cloud-based Refine platform delivers denials management in a seamless application. The Refine Audit solution for government audits enables you to receive and respond to Medicare documentation requests electronically. Eliminate lost audit notifications and ADRs sent by mail, saving time and money. Prove timely filing of audit responses. Improve payment response times for audited claims. Manage audits through a single cloud-based solution. Consolidate software tools, eliminating the need for separate data and screen scraping utilities. And enhance the security of audit response data with electronic delivery. Learn more about the Refine platform at bindmedical.com and save the date for their upcoming webinar with Rack Monitor on November
1: 9th. Now it's time for the results of today's Monitor Money Listener Survey. And once again, here's Alan Finkshamnick. Thank you so much, Chuck. Does your hospital or agency refer patients safety net clinics or community health centers.
6: Well, 31% of our listeners today, and actually approaching 32%, as I speak, said absolutely. Very few, less than 12% said no. Does not apply. About 15%. About 42% do not know. And as I'm often prone to saying, well, you better get in the know. Otherwise,
1: your fiscal return on investment could be at issue. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much, Ellen. What's the surprising truth behind the No Surprises Act? Well, here now to report our lead story is healthcare Attorney Thomas Force. Good morning, Tom. Hey, actually, it seems like the surprise is really the devil in the details. Is that right? That's
7: correct, Chuck. Thank you so much. Nice to be here. Uh, so the interim final rule for the Federal No Surprise Act was just released recently on uh, September 30th by Departments of Human Health and Labor and Treasury. And it is not good for out-of-network providers, while the guidance focus on uh, topics such as providing good faith estimates to patients, the mediation uh, referred to as the IDR process, and consents needed for patients, it left unfortunately many unanswered questions. Um, it is written in a, in a way that that clearly favors the uh, the payers and the carriers. Um, this is what I mean by that. You know, it was hoped that the uh, qualified payment amount, which is the uh, amount of of the rate if there's a dispute between out-of-network provider and payer, it would be something close to a reasonable and customary rate. Uh, but the the rate, uh, the qualified payment rate, is deemed to be the median in-network rate, and that rate is deemed to be presumptively fair and reasonable, which is bad news for the out-of-network industry. Uh, there is an arbitration process, and the arbitrator may select an offer closest to they must select an offer closest to the qualified payment um, amount however they you can dispute this with credible information submitted clearly demonstrating that the qualified payment amount is materially different from the appropriate out of network rate uh, the credible information term means information that upon critical analysis is worthy of belief and is trustworthy material difference term means that there exists substantial likelihood that a reasonable person with the training and qualifications of an IDR uh, mediator would consider the information important in determining the out-of-network rate. However, it's very clear that the burden to overcome the median in-network rate is going to be very, very high. This is an interim final rule. It is not a final rule, and there's a comment period going on right now. Note that the act only applies to surprise out-of-network bills only, uh, not, not bills where there's proper disclosure to the patient about the out-of-network uh, uh, service. Thus, if the out-of-network provider provides advance notice of the surprise bill with estimate of cost, the act would not apply. It is unclear whether the, state, the various state surprise bill laws will supersede the
1: No Surprise Act. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tom. That was healthcare attorney Thomas Ford. Tom is a founder and the president of the Patriot Group. That's gonna be a wrap for this edition of Monitor Monday, and we thank you so very much for being with us today. And a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, Nicole Emanuel, Alan Fink Sandik, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and healthcare attorney Thomas Force who reported our lead story. And one more thing before we go, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do rate us, give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody.
0: Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.